all, and welcome back to another thrilling episode of Adventuring Academy. I'm your humble Dungeon Master, Brennan Lee Mulligan, and this is Dropout's home vodcast where we talk about all things related to tabletop RPGs, running them at your home for your friends and going on all sorts of fantastical adventures. Oh my goodness, our guest today, I could not be more excited. Our guest today is one of YouTube's premier animators and D&D storytellers that creates all kinds of funny, relatable stories about D&D, the chaotic mishaps that happen at the table, emotional moments, problem players, all sorts of storied and fabled legends of tabletops all over the world. You know him, you love him. He's the creator of Puffin Forest, my friend and yours, Benjamin Scott! Ah! Hey, thank you. Appreciate the intro. <laughs> that was great. That was we gotta get the people hype. You know what I mean? I miss live comedy so much. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care that it's a show where we just shoot the breeze about tabletop. We're gonna get these people up in their seats. We're gonna get them amped. Um, Benjamin, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing this fine day? Oh, it's great, great. Thanks for having me. Um, well, uh, for number one, for those that have not checked it out, uh, who have been living under a rock. Puffin Forest is such a phenomenal and incredible YouTube channel. Uh, some of the zaniest, funniest, wildest stories that do a really great job, I think, not only of capturing the fun animated spirit of these larger than life adventures, but also kind of like the zaniness and fun of table shenanigans, which any person who has watched Dimension 20 knows we live for, right? Those narratives, not just occurring in the world of the characters, but also the kind of narratives that occur at the table between friends and players. Uh, Benjamin, talk to me a little bit about how you started playing um, and did those shenanigans at the table start right away? Like, were your first tables when you started very like serious or were there bits and spoofs and goofs kind of right away? So originally, uh, actually, when I when we first started playing, we were like, oh, we're going to tell it like a TV series. I think almost everyone who starts playing tabletop RPGs or something like that has seen Lord of the Rings. It's like, yeah, I want that. And and there are definitely a lot of tables that, that do that. But um, there's certain aspects about RPGs that I think also kind of invite humor because you're rolling a d20 and you fail. And it's like <laughs> you leave and it's like, oh, wait, we went to the wrong tower. And you like leave, then you come back. But then like the wizard's gone. You know, or something like that. And so um, there's a certain, like, there's certain shenanigans that just kind of happen. Or um, the fact that uh, sometimes the DM is trying to set something up to be really cinematic and like, ooh, I saw this in the movie. And then the players are like, actually, you know, there's more than one way to solve this problem. Like, you can't kidnap this person. But if they're dead... That also works, like, problem, you know, problem solution, we're just the idea machine, and so it's like, um, there definitely was a, like, a bit of kind of friction between DMs and players, where it's like, okay, we're trying to figure out how we want this to be, and uh, some players preferred more serious, and some people preferred it more comedic, and us kind of coming to terms to figure out, like, where are we going to stand, and some DMs, to this day, like it much more silly, and some DMs that I play with liked it a lot more serious. I think that's very well put, right? That the, the in a certain way, the weird thing about storytelling is that stories are filled with near misses and one in a million chances. You know, what are the odds that Luke hits the exhaust port on the Death Star? It's, it's impossible, what an incredible victory. But of course, 
the odds that Luke hits the exhaust port on the Death Star are a hundred out of a hundred because it's a story. There's no, he's uh, he has to do it. So it's an illusion of a one in a million chance because it's actually a million in a million chance. He's always gonna hit it because it's completely crafted by a storyteller. Yeah. That's not true in D&D, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So D&D has to accommodate actual probability it has to accommodate mm -hmm. actual moments where no there there's a very real chance of failure here um in your home games both as a player uh, a dungeon master a gm or storyteller if you're doing other systems like what what is your like like every system has its own term every system has <laughs> the keeper you the got keeper exactly it's the guy behind the screen, whatever you want to call it. Um, but what do you, like, because that's something that I think often doesn't get talked about is, like, developing a healthy relationship with failure. Do you remember, as, as you, like, either, like, in your first big, like, the first time you ran, like, a big sort of multi-session campaign, like, uh, how, how did you start to build that relationship with failure that, like you're saying, can often be like inherently comedic, right? Like what were your first best practices that you found for like dealing with failure? Um, I think the big thing that you like, it's <clears throat> that um, like sometimes, honestly, a lot of times the failures would just happen. And then it's like, you got to deal with like, okay, I think the big thing is like retreating, like figuring out how to get out of there. Like if there's a bad situation, because the, Early on, it seems like the players have no escapes. But as you start playing, you start realizing like, oh, there's all these other back doors that I'm not thinking about. Like even if a player goes down, there's like re revivify, there's like healing magic, you know? And then even if they're dead, dead, they just get thrown into lava. There's still like resurrection. There's that high level NPC. And particularly the one which came up was in the final fight versus Malakar, it was like a big end game thing. And the players lost the fight. They just completely, it was just, it was down to the wire. My brother missed. And the problem is I couldn't even like fudge a die roll or anything. Cause he rolled, he knew a 20 didn't hit. He knew it was a 22. I had already told him that a 21 was a miss or something. And yeah. so it was like, we had to kind of work around that of like, okay, they lost, but then Malachar gets sent to a random ass dimension. I roll, he gets sent to Mount Celestia he gets in prison there, you know, kind of a thing. And so the players were totally fine with that ha being the ending. But it's um, it wasn't like what you have on paper, but that doesn't, it's like if you try and stick to a specific ending or a specific scenario, you're going to get disappointed because the dice are going to mess it up every time. Well, I think that's a great point too, which is that a good piece of advice for Dungeon Masters as well, and players, I guess, is... There's a great book on writing that talks about happy endings. And they, one of the things it says is that a happy ending is never really a happy ending. It's just creative editing. Meaning, like, like you know, you stop the story at a high point. Like, it's very easy to say, like, and they lived happily ever after. But in this fantasy world, do, do they really, like, the princess never has a bad day again in the future? It's like, no, you're just ending on a success. So one of those things for a dungeon master, if you're thinking about, like, oh, it has to end here, this moment here, is that moment of redirecting energy. That, like, 
a nat one has to be a nat one. We know it's a failure, right? Or at least I home rule that nat ones are sort of auto fails. But the thing is always like, what are the stakes of a failure? And can it all, if you can find that way to always narrate it as this is a tremendous setback, this is a crushing loss, this is a whatever, but it's not over yet. And it's that thing of like, just keep dusting yourself off and getting back up and moving to that ne that next thing, right? Like finding that way to redirect energy to keep the story going because over enough die rolls, you are gonna find that very cathartic success, yeah. right? I, uh, I, I think everyone has that like door example of like you kick in the door, two. Okay, I try it again. You kick in the door, four. You kick in the, you know, it's like, and it's like, oh, you're just kind of like, why wouldn't this person in, and you could apply that to many different scenarios. Why wouldn't they just roll until they got, or even knowledge checks or something, but it's like, oh, they failed, but something happens as of consequence. And then, you know, you keep the story. It's like every die roll is impactful. And if a die roll is not impactful, sometimes it's just fine to just kind of like, okay, you get there. You know, we yeah. don't have to do a bunch of like traveling on the road and perception checks every hour and go find some wild, you get there. You just, you arrive. You arrive, exactly. Um, I fully, fully agree with that. I think that makes a ton of sense. And uh, I think too, like you're saying, it's, I think failure needs to cost, but it doesn't need to be the end of the story. If, you know, spoilers for, if you're watching this and have not watched season one of Dimension 20 of Fantasy High, um, the end of the second episode was our first battle episode. Um, two of our PCs died. This is like my this is my first day DMing on the job for Dimension Twenty, and two of our six PCs are dead. And I go, oh no! Like, what have I done? I'm I'm ruined. Um, but what happens is we I was like, okay, we can't just hand wave it away because that will remove all stakes. But also, I can't have a third of our player characters dead on the second episode. It's going to completely like destroy the tone of the campaign. You know, like we we were not like prepared for this, right? So what ended up happening was their principal came in and basically did this horrifying magic ritual to kill himself and the school's guidance counselor in a life for a life bargain to bring two of the PCs back up. So it's like, okay, you guys are alive again, your principal is dead. And he was like a major NPC that was supposed to be helping you. And there's this moment of them of like, you we got around that feeling of like, oh, death doesn't matter. There's no such thing as failure and traded it for, oh my God, the principal's dead. Like, and we are like back to this, this sort of compromise between having stakes, but also having to work around how horrifying it would be to have our players just die. Um, yeah, yeah, because I think I think if you go the I, and I and in some games that does work, but I think that there are are problems with like cycling out players every single week, where it's like characters are just dying, where you can't necessarily get attached to them. Like that, in in another way, that undercuts the stakes as well, because if most of the characters are dying off week after week after week, then it's like people you don't recognize any of the characters after a while. A hundred percent. I think that there's also like a 
there there are these ways that you have to manage storytelling. You have to manage the collaborative nature of things. Uh, uh, because again, D and D has this bizarre balance between being a story and being a game. You need to find ways of satisfying kind of both of those impulses oh. at the same time. Um, uh, but when it works, baby, it's the best thing in the world. Because um, yeah, with, yeah, between those two, they're so they're such at odds. Because it's like when you think about a narrative, it's like oh, we're gonna do this, this, this. It has kind of a structure. But with a game, there's like a back and forth. And um, there was even there was there was this one RPG I was interested in playing where they like players could develop villains and then they could like RP their own villains and the players were like I shouldn't do this like I don't want to play a villain because I want to play against because that and they couldn't really articulate why but I think it's because it undercut the nature of the game like they wanted to not know what the villain was doing because that meant that they had like some kind of surprise when and they wanted to have kind of that back and forth. I really dig that and i and i get where they're coming from i there are a lot of indie tabletop games that i would characterize as being fully storytelling games these are sort of like gmless yeah. games that can be very rules light they're wonderful and beautifully fun and great but as someone who works as a writer those games are very similar to just writing a story together. Like we might have, the game might provide a structure for that, but the impulse is one that's very creative. The experience that games, uh, uh, and again, D&D is not alone in this, but games like D&D or like your various, you know, sort of like GM figure games provide um, is the, the catharsis and exaltation in experiencing living first person in a story and struggling against the world and getting the feeling of uh, overcoming challenges, mm -hmm. of, of getting extraordinary powers to outwit and outplay adversarial forces in the world. And I think in that way, like um, when I'm playing a player character, I don't necessarily want to feel responsible for, um, how do I put this? Like you're saying, like I don't wanna be responsible for my villain. I want to get to live first person in the world and go, this dastardly villain is trying to outwit me, but I'm gonna outwit them. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not that that is the only experience worth pursuing. Collaborative storytelling in other mediums is very fun as well. But I think in D&D &D what I'm looking for is like, no, 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 I want, I want the feeling of living the hero's mm -hmm. like experience of, fighting against the forces of evil and emerging yeah. victorious. Yeah, and I think I think that that is one of the things that the the game aspect of D&D uh does very well is is you get to outwit. You get to have that game experience of like I'm trying to outwit the opponent and figure out their thing and then that in itself becomes the story. That is the narrative that develops from it. Yes, 100%. And I think that's a very fun thing too because again, it's not it's I'm trying to think how to put this. It is not adversarial player to DM. It is simply like exulting in that mastery of like, like when a, when a DM throws a monster down in front of me, I'm not like, <laughs> this guy's trying to screw me. Like, look at this monster. You know, it's like, it's, it's like, this is the point of the game, but there is that fun still and cool. This monster is here. I am, I get to try as hard as possible with my understanding of the game to have my characters struggle against these things that are external forces, right? The armor class and hit point total of a monster is an external force. And that fun of being like, 
I can, there are spells and abilities that will be more or less optimal in this moment. And I get to try and figure out what's the smart thing to do here. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that like, uh, um, I think sometimes people will put a difference, will we'll kind of create a dichotomy between the narrative elements of the game or the, um, the mechanical elements of the game. But to me, the mechanical elements are deeply narrative. In that moment where I'm in combat with limited resources trying to prevail is living through one of those tense, beautiful story moments, right? I, I will say that is a definitely a hill that I will die on is because a lot of times people say like, oh, you have the narrative and then you have mechanics. And you could take any narrative and port it to, into any mechanics. And that is something that I very much disagree with because it's like, you have like, for example, uh, critical miss tables or something mm -hmm. like that. Like those really strongly impact the narrative or um, <clears throat> you can swap out mechanics and they have these huge impacts on the narrative and the world that you're trying to set. So for example, if you had a mechanic where it's like, oh, every time you drop to zero hit points, you have some lasting scar or you like drop your ability, your ability scores go down or something that would make like a much grittier um, thing. And uh, for example, like Call of Cthulhu, where whenever you see something weird happening, your mental sanity goes down. Like mm -hmm. uh, some people have talked about porting that into D&D &D, and you can totally do that. It's just that that's not what I'm looking for in a D&D &D experience. And so I, you know, it, it works great in that system, but it's just, I, I don't like it as much in D&D &D because that's not what I go to D&D &D for. Well, I think this is something actually that ev every wherever you are on the spectrum of preferring hyper mechanical play, preferring hyper narrative play, if you're like me, preferring both, be being like these are not mutually exclusive, right? Um, you can definitely find, I think, you everyone can acknowledge that mechanics do impact storytelling, right? So there are people who are use that as like criticisms of systems, as being like the, the mechanics lead to this type of storytelling. Um, and like you're saying, like there are things that I love, like for example, in old World of Darkness stuff that I used to play, they had injury systems where as you got injured, um, you became way less effective. And there mm -hmm. was a moment where I was like, damn, like why doesn't D&D &D do that? That makes sense. And quickly realized why D&D &D doesn't do that. Because as soon as you create a system where as you take damage, you become less effective, you create a death spiral. Because it's like, oh, whoever took damage is less likely now to be able to deal damage and is more likely to take more damage. And oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know that story. I know yeah. the story. So if you're playing, which, which, but it makes sense for a system where if you're playing in something like Mage the Ascension or Werewolf or whatever, where it's like those systems in a weird way are kind of like, hey, combats are few and far between and you should be really careful before you mess with somebody. And if you do, you should try to just murder them. Because right. if you start d dishing out, like any combat becomes, you know, even if you're like an ancient vampire or whatever, it's like combat is dangerous no matter who you are. Whereas right. with D&D, &D, it's like, oh, if you're 20th level, what are you worried about? It's yeah, they, they kind of want that thing where it's like someone's getting riddled with arrows as carrying their, you know, comrade out of there. They don't want it, you know, they want, blah, they want that like heroic fantasy. And that's, what the mechanics kind of deliver. And I am curious, which, uh, which, like, I assume you, when you say World of Darkness, did you play like vampire, werewolf? Um... We, I, we mostly played Mage the Ascension because it was the trippy philosophy I did. one. I played uh, that. That's the one I played, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, totally trippy and wild. Loved it. Uh, absolute 
gibberish gobbledygook magic system, but boy, did I think it was cool. Uh, I, and just still do. It's just the magic system is very like, how do you interpret this? What is this I, supposed to be? Yeah. I would I would always have to be the person who played who ran it, and I would always have to have like a half an hour to forty five minute lecture before I ran. I'm like, okay, here's how the magic system works, and this is how we're doing spell casting. There's this thing called rote spell casting. We're not doing that. We're doing art, and then yeah. I'm gonna just gonna be interpreting it. You're just gonna have to go with it. We're gonna do a die roll, and I'm gonna <laughs> tell you if it is about in the right ballpark. <laughs> Incredible. Oh, I missed that game. Um. Uh, so, um, but I think to that point, right, uh, uh, that, yeah, finding that balance. And I think too, it's, I used to, uh, teach at a live action role-playing summer camp. I think the, the real path forward, I think, is to embrace mechanics in their ability to deliver compelling story moments. Like, if you find combats to be a slog, by all means, go to like a combat-less system. But I would also say, if you're finding combats to be a slog, make your combats more narrative and exciting. Like narrate these moments, narrate what these beats mean. Um, I would say if you're a dungeon master and you're designing combat encounters, try to make sure that your combat encounters have story beats built into them, that there's something climactic and cool and dramatic within them that relates to the story on a larger level. Um, and I would say too that like um, finding, how do I put this? Like finding those moments within combat that like, what does this mean on a story level? Like this bad defeat, this heroic success, um, uh, finding ways to draw character growth. When I worked at this live action uh, role-playing camp, we had, um, you know, foam swords. People would go and hit each other with swords in combat. And one of the classes that I taught was called combat role-playing, which was basically the idea of like, hey, when we're LARPing and you're in character, don't fully drop character when you start a sword fight. Like, there's a lot of ways in which I think gaming teaches us to kind of compartmentalize in ways we shouldn't. Like, even in Final Fantasy, you're on the world map scooting along, and then you zoom into combat, and now the entire, like, layout of the game has changed, which encourages you to think about gameplay almost as being segmented. But what we would do in that LARP camp is try to be like, no, if you're, like, an honorable knight and a sword fight breaks out, don't just, like totally drop character and try to win the sword fight as hard as you can try to fight as your character would fight and find those moments. Like you wouldn't stab someone in the back. You wouldn't do these other things like that. Like try to uphold storytelling, even as the game shifts between these different modalities. I, I think there's a section of your brain because you're playing, you know, you're playing an RPG, you're looking at the mechanics that you're like, Hmm, this is like, you can look at it and you can look at the numbers and be like, this is the logically correct answer. Yes, but you gotta like turn that section off and just be like, look, it's we're not gonna be talking later on about how you got a plus one because you use this spell instead of this other spell. Yeah. You know, we're gonna be talking about how cool it was that you cast jump on yourself and then leapt over the dragon to go save this person. You know, yeah. even though this person, technically speaking, wasn't giving you that much of a bonus to your, you know, or anything like that. Yes, a hundred percent. I like, yeah. Uh, uh, using the mechanics, I definitely do, as much as I love mechanics, I do think the whole idea is 
The reason I love mechanics is because I believe in their ability to deliver these really gripping story moments. And for us to, in understanding these, you know, arcane rule systems, to produce moments where we go, oh my God, how could that ever have happened? That's so damn cool. You know, season one of, of Fantasy High, when, you know, Adine uses the web spell not to restrain somebody, but to like Spider-Man web sling and pull this golem uh, into this, this, this pavement golem, into this big thing of acid. Uh, you know, it's like a very, like those moments of creativity where the mechanics and the narrative marry yeah. together in a really fun way. Normally um, when I have people who are kind of divested from the combat, you either have one kind of person is, you know, there's many different kinds, but usually it's either one is that there's someone who doesn't necessarily care about the mechanics. They're like, look, you know, I, I just, I, you're telling me about AC bonus and flat footed. I just, I don't know if I care about that. And then you have another person who like, it's mechanically boring because they just, maybe they just run up and they hit someone. And usually with that other person that you need to like, okay, make it more narratively complicated. And then for the other person, maybe this might not be their game. Like it, it is, there is, there there are some people who maybe don't like that as much complexity, uh, but most of the time it's, you can kind of add different things kind of sort of going on to make it so that way it is a complex mechanically, me there's a lot more me mechanical complexity in situations so that way they can solve problems. Yes, 100%. Um, I wanted to take a minute, by the way, too, uh, just to talk with you as well, uh, uh, not only about all the fun stuff we're talking about here with game systems and mechanics and stuff like that, uh, but also to talk about just uh, uh, the beginnings of Puffin Forest and uh, uh, talking a little bit about uh, your channel uh, uh, and getting the, the biography of how it began uh, and what you see as yeah, thumbs up. Uh, and what you see as being the marriage between animation and why it's been like it's such a, a great goddamn channel. And uh, uh, what like what what that sweet spot is that sweet note between like the animation and storytelling of animation and representing these hilarious and awesome and heartfelt table moments. Okay. Uh, so basically the thing is, is that my origin was that um, I was, I kind of wanted to, um, so originally I had written a blog and it was like, oh, I'm going to be talking about our games and I'm going to be going into like, this is what we did. And the problem is, I think I was like, sometimes you go into too much detail. Like if you're someone who's telling a story of like a session, it's like, you just go on and on and on and on. And I realized like, okay, you got to keep it like short, like, you know, little beats because... Um, or, or at least like provide some context to what it is. And it, the other thing that I realized after kind of telling stories is that, um, there's like people like it, it's sometimes the players are, are more interesting than our characters, or it's like people are, are curious about like the, the player interaction, like, and how that interacted with the characters. And I'm not just telling a story of like, the game like the game has its own story but there's also a story being told between the players of this rivalry between the characters where this character won't help another person but it's like the players just ah, who can do more damage kind of a thing <laughs> or um the or just the dice just don't come up in your favor or something horrific happening uh where you need to hide a bunch of bodies and so you cut them up and stuff them into a bunch of uh, counters in the kitchen um and um, so anyway, I was sharing those stories and um, I think that it's, I think it really connected with people a lot more um, than a lot of the other stuff. And, and plus YouTube, YouTube's a great format because it's like, you can watch a video, uh, it's uh, very short. And um, 
I just, I think it was also just showing some of the failures and some of the weird aspects that happened because um, it, it made me realize, like our games in particular aren't really like a TV show because mm -hmm. um, in a TV show, everything's so like, you get to sit down and write a script and have actors on it and then they don't like it and they get to re-edit it and they keep going over it. And that I realized like when you're doing improv, especially with people who don't normally do improv, like, People just say stuff that comes off the top of their head. Just anything <laughs> that they think or imagine. And sometimes the paladin is suggests that we kill all the children. Why? It's just they're really annoying. It's... <laughs> Uh, yeah, there is that, uh, like, uh, finding that, that middle ground where, uh, uh, again, these, like, impressing the reality of those moments. I definitely, we started instituting a rule. We found that, that our PCs became a lot more homicidal, uh, the more... Uh, we had gone either without a meal or were playing too late into the night. <laughs> and we found a strong correlation between grumpy players and characters becoming increasingly murderous. And we said, you know what? We need to have some really regimented snack breaks in here. Um, uh, that's so funny. Um, well, so I, I definitely love that. And I want to talk to you again about like the idea of the place and role of like comedy at the table. Cause one of my favorite things about Puffin Forest is how many of these moments we see where not to get too philosophical about it, but like so much comedy comes from this meta narrative of the awareness we have that there are two things going on simultaneously, right? There's the, the in-world story of our characters who are on an epic quest. And then there is the proceeding narrative of the players who are playing a game at the table, right? One of the things we often said about Dimension 20, and I think actual play in general, and, and why we've seen a big, like, boom in popularity of shows like this is it kind of scratches two itches at the same time, right? Because um, on the one hand, people love narrative media. They love storytelling. They love the characters. They love the emotions and the deep catharsis and stuff like that. But also people love kind of like reality TV. They love watching like a group of friends hang out and kind of be together, right? And I think that that is true of how people even consume their own yeah. games, right? Um, uh, what do you think about, is is it is there something to the idea of having to balance those two things? Do Does one or the other of those ever like become overly weighted in, in one direction? Um, and do you think that these like two elements of storytelling, both like us as players doing bits at the tables and then like the lived reality of the characters, uh, uh, what's what's the best way for them to kind of exist in simpatico with each other? Yeah, so one of the things that's actually really interesting is that like when I was making the videos or you would have a reaction, like one of the fascinating things is the reason people watch the people, the reason people are drawn in is because something horrifying would happen and the players are horrified. That's a real reaction. They're really horrified. You know, they're like, oh, shit. You know, you just killed that guy like in front of us. <laughs> and it, it can actually be very uh, interesting or frustrating as a DM because you want like an actual reaction. But one of the things that I actually found out was, was funny is that sometimes when people are like scared or frightened or they have a reaction, they're just like, huh. And they don't, they don't emote. And yeah. it's, 
it, what sometimes what the DM wants is actually dramatization. Like they want the character, no, Charlie, and like grab the head and go down. But sometimes when something happens um, and there's an actual reaction, it's like, oh, that happened. And it's it can be confusing at first as a DM. That's why whenever I'm talking to like new players, I'm like, remember to emote, like what your characters' reactions are, what they want, you know, the desires. Because you could be going through an entire multi-stage character arc inside of your mind with this orphanage and the children and stuff. But if you don't tell us that, if you don't emote that, how do we know? We don't and know. We, We've even had that where we get to the end of a campaign and someone said, man, I was really morally conflicted and told us this entire story that they had. And it's like, how did we not know? You know, because it's like, it was just no! the campaign ended. And then they, That's the good stuff. That's the stuff we need, right? They were um, having this entire two personality breaking bad Walter White Heisenberg thing going on. But like, they didn't tell us what they ever did in their private life. So we had no way of knowing. Oh my God, that is so funny. Yeah, well, I think that people, you know, uh, obviously different play styles, people are welcome to play however it is that they want. Um, but one of the things that I remember telling people when I was teaching improv classes was always that we understand the truth of things through your emotional reaction more than we do through descriptors of what is happening on a static level, right? So for example, in an improv scene, or for that matter at a D&D table, we will never see the meteor plummeting to the planet to, to incinerate everybody. We will never see that in an improv scene, right? We're just people on a stage, you know, pantomiming this stuff. So it's like, if you wanna communicate the danger posed by that meteor when you don't have a special effects department, we don't have computer graphics, we don't have any of that stuff, the whole thing has to live on your face, looking up and going, Wah! like it, that is how we know how bad it is, is just through you screaming, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's very true of D&D &D as well, right? Like why on earth would you play this pen and paper game when you could be in a beautifully rendered video game or you could be playing something, you know, whatever, going out and playing paintball, I don't know, whatever, right? Like, why would you play this game? The the way, the strength of this game is our ability to render how these stories are impacting these characters that we care about, right? So like you're saying, the DM needs that, no, the DM needs that heartfelt thing to know that any of this is registering, to know mm -hmm. that like these things are successful. Mm -hmm. um, and as funny as it is, those moments of genuine emotional reaction, be they fear or sorrow or laughter or whatever, is what we're going for, right? Um, because the whole, like, again, I think the selling point of D&D, &D, both as a game and a hobby, uh, and also as like a medium for actual play, for like creating content, is no other medium other than, you know, like long form improv, gives you the ability to watch the creators react to their creation in real time, right? Yeah. Uh, to be like, oh, I am like, to watch all of the authors of something be just as surprised as you are. Like the mm -hmm. idea of, you know, watching George R. R. Martin type out the, ne you know, the, the next Game of Thrones book on his, you know, little typewriter and look at the page and go, oh shit, what? Like. Yeah, you're you're never gonna be able to see that. Yeah, um, 
you get to create content and put it in there and kind of have it be a part of the world. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, 100, 100%. Um, and uh, what were you going to say? Go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, I actually did not answer one of the questions that you had posed to me earlier. Please, pose, uh, please answer away. The, uh, the question was originally on the whole difference between the meta plot yeah. and then the actual plot. Yes. And um, the, the thing is, is that, I, and I, I got off a little bit talking about other stuff, but anyway, with, with those two things, um, a lot of times people really like having the meta plot and knowing that this is a story. And it's interesting because it almost, this is gonna sound really weird. It, it's almost like playing fan, being fan fiction. Cause it's like, the thing is that people don't just want to be in the world. They want to be in the world with some knowledge about, they want to be themselves in the world in some way. And it's like, um, let's say that, uh, like there was actually a game I was playing in the other, uh, a while ago, where there was like a murder mystery that was happened. And the second Ooh. the players got invited to a mansion, it was like, oh, thank you. Here's the butler, Mr. So-and-so, and here's the maid. And then there's this noble who's having a conflict with someone else. And he walked out of the room. Like the second that was introduced, the player's like, Oh, oh, this is a murder mystery. This is a murder mystery. And they, they actually started gearing up and like asking questions. But it was they they wanted to to know that it was like that, kind of going into it and have their characters react, kind of knowing that. Like if you were Tony Stark in Iron Man, you wouldn't just be going through the stuff that Tony Stark does. Like you would be like, oh, you're a villain. Ah, you're Thanos or something. And you'd either like try and fight him or not fight him. Like there's there's some meta knowledge that the players want to have that interacts with the story and um, that they kind of want to carry into it. I think that's extremely true, right? And there's always that funny thing too of like how genre savvy are these PCs sort of allowed to be, right? Um, uh, how, how like aware of the story that, uh, that they are in are these characters allowed to be? Um, and it's interesting because I think that there are ways in which metagaming, it's very funny. Metagaming is one of those things that gets thrown out as being universally bad. And we obviously know, know the ways in which metagaming is harmful where it's like, you know, oh, don't use the fact that you like are roommates with your dungeon master and saw some of their notes on the coffee table to yeah. like, you know, whatever. But like, um, but there are some ways also in which I think we like, I want to be careful here because I don't, it's not, not to encourage metagaming, but it's that thing of like, understanding the rhythms and beats of storytelling, understanding that like a character has just gone through a heartbreaking moment and the next session you have your character come over and even though maybe your character isn't aware that they had some like heartbreaking revelation, some encounter with an, a long lost rival or family member or whatever, but your character just takes a moment to initiate a scene that might build on the pathos of that moment, you know, to be like, yeah. like, hey, I, like, I wanted to tell you, like, I, I see the far off look in your eyes. Like, are you all right? Are you doing okay? Like those moments, in other words, PCs understanding that they have a, an ability to ask for and call for advancements in character and storytelling as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I agree with that because it's, once again, metagaming, it's such a blanket term. There's a lot of different things that kind of fall under its jurisdiction. So it can be hard to figure out what's like, what's good. Is it good metagaming, bad gaming? Like, yeah. is anything that's under metagaming bad? So this thing is good. So therefore it's not metagaming. Yeah. Um, but it's the, and I definitely agree with that of, 
like, oh, this character's having scenes, so I back off. Or like, mm -hmm. oh, this could have some drama if I bring up this to this person, but he's probably not going to turn, but I'll bring it up anyway because it'll be a great scene. Yeah. Um, there, there have been like once or twice where there's been some issues with that, where it's mm -hmm. like, oh, this character knows too much, so the DM's going to try and kill him off, and then they like die, and I don't save them, because it's like, <laughs> oh, that's him killing him off, and it's like, oh, wait. <laughs> I, oh, I was supposed to save them. Or there was the one time I was a DM, and I put out a trap, and the players found out that there was a trap, and they just walked into it, and the trap went off. I'm like, why didn't you do anything? It's like, oh, we thought that the plot was going there, like, because the bad guy said, oh, I bet you can't go down into this dark, scary forest, and the players just went in there, and it's like, oh, well, that's, I thought that's what the, I was like, no, it was a trap, he's a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny, the idea of PCs being helpful and just absolutely ruining their themselves, crashing upon the rocks. Oh, my God, that is so silly and funny. I love that. Um, uh, well, I want to jump into, we have some great questions here as well. Um, uh, uh, this first question comes to us from Sluggo. Thanks, Sluggo. Um, Sluggo says, Puffin Forest, your animations are what got me into D&D. True for a lot of people. Uh, uh, what inspired you to animate your experiences in D&D? And has your content changed the way you engage with D&D and TTRPGs in general? Okay. I feel bad for saying this, but I had some really bad sessions and I wanted, I was going to anonymously make a video on YouTube talking about like, I tried to kill off my character, I can let him die. Or like I, you know, like, but the thing is, is that I realized early on, like, I'm not going to do that. Cause it's like you, like it's, I, you know, it's it's because you don't want it to come around and stuff like that. Um, and it's it's. I think there was like one a few videos where I kind of vented, and then I was like, okay, I can't. Besides, this is bad. And so, um, I think it's. I, I focused more on kind of the screw ups and like, oh, I, I messed up and stuff. And so sometimes it's like just talking about the issues that arise without necessarily trying to like point fingers at any one individual in particular and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Uh, I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, I think it's interesting too, the, the, the idea here of like, has your content changed the way you engage with D&D &D and TTRPGs in general? Like, uh, I, I don't know, some some funny integrity of like, don't just add stuff into your sessions because you think it's gonna be fun to animate later, Benjamin. <laughs> Actually, you know, what was interesting is that um, I went into the the water deep. So I, I made a re an RPG replay, which was on the Curse of Strahd, and I went into water deep. And there is the thought in the back of my head as I'm running it of like, I'm gonna have to make a video on this, you know, like what can I use? And so it does actually impact my, my games because it's like, I think like, ah, this is gonna be really funny. Or like, can I use this? And it's like, I'm playing, like, Ben, you gotta focus. You cannot be thinking about this. You just gotta play the game. And what's great about my format is the fact that if there's material that doesn't work, I can just not use it. I don't yes. have to, I don't have to put anything in the video I don't want to. Uh, a million percent. Well, I think it's 22 because that, I mean, I think everyone has that elements of that as well. Um, like I would even my home games and stuff like 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 
part when we knew we were going to be doing remote seasons of Dimension 20, I started practicing more with Roll20, got more facility with Roll20, and ended up porting my home games and stuff over there because I suddenly knew kind of how to use it and that it was like a little bit friendlier to use in the long run. So I think that like definitely your livelihood impacts this stuff in in some ways and i guess like everyone's interests in a way do right like um i am always going to like hyper emphasize things in my world like you know based on my own irl interests of like weird occult systems and magic systems uh fairy lore and like sort of you know overlapping mythologies uh, uh or even just the idea of i don't know i just saw an article that's been burning a hole in my brain that they've discovered two new species of mammal in australia that's crazy it's so cool uh, so even in my head, I'm like, ooh, a D&D session with new new creatures, new cryptids, new uh, fun elements of magical zoology. Um, so I think like yeah. have, you know, having your livelihood impact your games is natural. It's just a part, mm -hmm. of, yeah. uh, part of it. Or sometimes you just watch a thing, you're like, that's cool. And then suddenly it's in D&D. <laughs> Bada boom, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's magic. It's magic. Uh, this next one comes to us from Chrissy. Thanks, Chrissy. Um, uh, question for Puffin Forest. Uh, you and Brennan both represent new avenues to getting people into TTRPGs through fun animations and more edited actual plays. How does it feel to be at the forefront of D&D TTRPG content as it starts to attract a wider audience? Do you think there will soon be a flood of new D&D content creators as it becomes more popular? Thanks for the question, Chrissy. It's an interesting question. Yeah. I I also feel like it already has, right? Like I think in a real way that like, um, uh, in other words, so, so to look at this question of like, uh, first of all, there's a, a, a big kindness in this question uh, of suggesting that, that we are at the forefront. Thank you for that, uh, that, that uh, opinion of yours that is very uh, generous, I appreciate it. Um, uh, and do you think there will soon be a flood of new D&D content creators I think some some people have posited like, oh, there's like a big explosion of this stuff. Like, look at you know, starting with like the Adventure Zone, or starting with like you know, uh, a big streaming actual play shows, Critical Role, looking at uh, Puff and Forest on YouTube, the sort of animated things, looking at the you know, even D and D itself is like you know, performed you know, it's it's had its like three biggest years in the past couple decades, right? Um, that being said, I don't know that I would describe this as a flood reminiscent of like a, um, of like a, because I think flood conjures images of like a bubble, if that is true, of like, oh, look, this is going to be a big flood of things. And then I think if you look at the big podcast renaissance, I think that we're just seeing, uh, you know, in a real way, like technology is often a big, technology presages artistic shifts in a lot of ways. I don't want to be that reductive about it, but you know, kind of the, there's a, there's a, a Marxist lens. You could look at this through of like, yeah, like following the printing press and the invention of the printing press, well, a big explosion of literacy, shocker, you know, like, um, and I think that if you look at things like YouTube and you look at the affordability and availability of podcasting resources, um, uh, I think that like we are in a larger podcast renaissance and as a result of that and a large stream renaissance with Twitch. So I think the actual play is 
experiencing a flood in keeping with a huge flood of content in general, right? Um, as these things become more accessible and affordable. Um, and I don't think that actual play is going anywhere. I think that actual play is a medium, whether it's D&D actual play or a broad range of actual play. You know, we have uh, friends of mine that do Mission to Zix, which is calling it actual play is kind of funny because they don't even use a system, but it is kind of like an improvised genre fiction, science fiction adventure told by a group of improvisers in a kind of linear path that really does follow like freeform tabletop RPG, right? James D'Amato on the one-shot RPG network that does all kinds of different tabletop. Uh, so I think actual play is here to stay would be my answer to this question. I don't know. Ben, what do you think in terms of like a flood of new content? Is that on the horizon or are we already kind of in it? I will say that uh, with YouTubing, um, there there definitely has been a, a rise in the last like two, three years. Because I do know that, you know, in like 2014, if you went onto YouTube, it was like there just wasn't that much content. But really, it's I mean, I think a big part of it is because um, D&D is, is more popular than ever than it was. Because um, I definitely know it's like you were kind of getting to the end of fourth edition. And I remember hearing on certain forums and stuff like that, that they would go into a convention and there weren't that many tables running D&D. There would be like one table over the weekend or maybe two. And now it's like my the local game store that I was going to, they were running like 15 tables every week, you know, and there was like three or four game stores. And so I think it's it's because D&D is on the rise and then in a combination with podcasting, how I mean, all these things are just coming together at the perfect moment where you have podcasting renaissance Everything is so cheap. It's accessible to get into. D&D is with the internet. Everyone, you don't have to buy the books. Mm -hmm. You can just go online and get like D&D Beyond or get one of these other things. Uh, everything is so accessible now. Um, and then with COVID, uh, people are at home, they're playing online. Um, and so there's a, they want to have that like social outlet. Um, as far as like content creators on like YouTube, I definitely know because there is a larger audience now people can make content for them. It's like before, if it was, if you only, if if like, I think if you go back like six years, like some of the largest D&D channels had like 60,000 subscribers, which is, it's a big number, but it's like, you can't really, that's not really sustainable, you know? And now you're getting channels that have like, um, you know, 500,000, 600,000, a million, stuff like that. And you have to, people have to know what D&D is in order to, to sustain those kind of large channels. Yeah, I think that's, extremely accurate to the, the larger ecosystem of how these things, of how people can manage to like create this content in a sustainable way. Um, and I think too, that like, there is a lot to be said, again, in this sort of explosion of these mediums, uh, it's, I think again, that these ecosystems are self-reinforcing and there is this kind of mutual, like, you know, uh, uh, someone one time recently commented like, why are all these actual play shows so friendly with each other, right? Like all these, the teachers are so, it's like, like in, in, you know, they're like, these are your competitors, like some Willy Wonka, Slugworth kind of <laughs> you know, sort of ridiculous. And that's the thing too, is it's like, not really, like none of these, these shows are a supportive collaborative ecosystem because we're, you know, uh, uh, I forget it was there was some like executive at Netflix that used to that used to say like we're not competing with other streaming platforms we're competing with any of the other number of activities that a person can go do in their free time and that's certainly how the D how the actual play I, space feels right now 
of like, no, we're, we are, every single actual play show increases the awareness of actual play shows in the public consciousness and brings people into this family of friends uh, that, you know, most of our shows all support each other, right? Because again, yeah, you were gonna say I that. have this image in my head now of you guys in like vans going around with like baseball bats with like nails in them, roughing up other D and D podcasters. It's like it's a turf war. It's cutthroat out here. <laughs> no, I mean the whole thing is is again Back it's like D four scattered. <laughs> yeah, leaving caltrops, caltrop D fours out in front of people's driveways. But again, it really is true that like, uh, um. Actual play is still so nascent. It is still entering this kind of hopeful like renaissance phase that every actual play show out there benefits every other actual play show by increasing the profile of this type of media, which is still kind of newborn on the world stage, I think. Um, uh, you know, in my head, it's like, are we, you know, are we competing with each other or are competing are we competing with someone, you know, re-watching some, you know, show on Netflix, right? Or some other thing, right? Yeah. So there's like a big, is a big world of content out there. Um, there is another question in there because he was asking about because uh, I think he also was asking about like introducing to D&D. Like let's say that someone got introduced to D&D through our shows. Like, because uh, I think that where you get introduced to D&D actually does impact what you expect out of it and what you think it is. Because I definitely know like someone might see like a, a game a show and then be like, oh, it's gonna be like this. And then maybe they get in with a group and it's like completely different from what they expect. Oh, totally, right? I mean, we've seen people talk about that too, which is it's a very funny thing because like, you know, speaking of like local game stores, I remember because I came into D D when my local game stores were either like mostly comic books with a small gaming section. Or if they were truly a gaming store, like, you know, I remember like the localist spot to me was October Country, which was mostly comics, and then had some dice, one small shelf of D&D books, a bunch of magic cards up on the glass counter, right? Um, and then the gaming stores were 80% Magic the Gathering, you yeah. know, often had like more paintball than they had D&D stuff when I was doing it. Like, you know, that was the, the that was the vibe at least. Um, and now that is not the case. You go see full, huge sections of D&D stuff um, with often other, you know, other uh, TTRPGs as well. Um, but like you're saying, like, I think there's definitely the the um, vibe of discovering, like, the, the, the thing that was your gateway brings you... Uh, the vibe that you're expecting, right? And sometimes I think people need help like managing their expectations, right? Um, you know, in the same way that like you, you know, people will watch Critical Role, which is a game of voice actors. They will watch Dimension 20, which is a table full of improvisers. Um, you, you know, or you are uh, like, we, again, we have like Rick Perry making our battle sets, who's one of the best miniature and set crafters in the world. So, um, you know, I think it's one of those things where hopefully people are inspired to find these games through our channels, but are not like expecting that to be their table at home. Mm. I I definitely know for our table, I tried showing off some of the stuff at the table of like, look, I use pogs with numbers and that's how I like drive. Cause, and then our, the thing is, is that I'll, I'll tell a story and it's like something really hilarious happens but like there might be like an hour or two where it's like it's just a normal game. Like, there's nothing to talk about. Like if you've ever played D and D, like it's you know 
Like there were some orcs. We killed them. You know, we took their stuff. We sold it in town. Like, you know, it's D&D. People forget too that like when we're playing Dimension 20, we are aware that we are professional performers. Like when we do when we do a home game, there was a home game I played again with Emily Axford, Siobhan Thompson, Murph, you know, a bunch of the Dimension 20 cast who uh, uh, literally we spent five hours doing a deep dive on the 3.5 item creation feats and them making magical items. Like if we had recorded this, I promise you it would have been unwatchable. It would have been completely the worst content you ever consumed. But we were having a ball because again, what works for a home game is not necessarily what works for camera, right? Yeah, we recorded, we actually, I put up a bunch of uh, videos and they were like the the actual plays of like Absaird and then the Curse of Strahd. Like there were, there were a bunch of videos that had gone up there. It was just like, they're almost unwatchable because it's like, it's a dark room, so you can't see anything. And there's only one mic, which is a, a cheap one on this thing and you can't hear people. So you can't, so it's a video where you can't see anything and you can't hear anyone. You know, like right, even, exactly. We even like we. I remember we we live streamed a game one time that was me, Molly Ostertag, Noel Stevenson, Lola Binkert, and Keely Weiss. That was a home game we were playing, and we streamed like one. I think one campaign session of it, and immediately we were just. It was like oh, like the people like once again like can't hear what we're saying. We don't we don't have a professional setup. People are like, what got rolled? What got rolled? Someone tell us. Like the chat was. Again, like the chat was hyped to be there, but it was very much like, oh, if like there are a lot of considerations to make something presentable to an audience. That's so I think if you're if you're at home kind of like pulling your hair out about like, how come my home game is not a professional production? It's like it doesn't need to be. Not even right. professional D&D players play professional D&D when they're playing at home for themselves, yeah. right? And even then that's a lot of times that's kind of fun, you know, sitting there talking for an hour about like what alchemist bomb should I use here? And which one should I get? And they'll have like a, a really long conversation about like elf society. Like who do elves have sex with? And that's like a full <laughs> two hour thing. They'll just go into a discussion about Deep dive. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing too, is like, we, I'm, I've said this before on the podcast, but we had a, a heist session that I ran in a home game um, where the we end it was a full weekend of playing end of friday night uh, they they figured out all of their reconnaissance and divinatory magic and i finally gave them the full security brief of the gnomish military intelligence palace they were trying to break into um and they we spent five hours the next day i don't think anyone even spoke we like ordered pizza but it was all of them cracking the books in a very crunchy 3.5 setting to just figure out how to break into this. And it really was, it was like a heist room. It was the part of the heist that heist movies skip over. It was the heist part. Oh, they just do the montage and they get past it. And they get past it. This was like, no, no, we're not doing a montage. We're like sitting here sweating in this hot room being like, okay, what do we got? What do we got boys? You know, like it was very, very fun. But that's the thing. It was incredibly fun. Um, uh, I love it. Um, we are going to move on to another question. Uh, this one is from uh, Lena. Thank you, Lena. Um, do you have any tips for imagining uh, combat using theater of the mind? Uh, I have trouble keeping track of where the enemies and players are. 
Uh, great question, Lena. Um, uh, for Benjamin, uh, do, you, uh, uh, do you mostly run using battle maps, tokens, theater of the mind? What's your preferred system? Uh, so if I have a small group, and depending on the system uh, that is not d and I'll sometimes use theater of the mind, but I, I really like battle maps. Uh, I've been using them quite a bit, and it has to do with the fact that the spells and stuff are very particular of like, oh, the area is like 20 feet, and the, there are radius and stuff. And um, players want to, like, my players in particular want to have that tactical feel. Uh, plus it helps to, um, in sometimes in theater of the mind, they'll say like, oh, where do I go? Or how do I, you know, am I, can I reach this location? And if I have it drawn in front of them, they're like, oh, I can. They look at it and they know exactly where they are. Yes, uh, I'm exactly the same way. Theater of the Mind is totally fine, but D&D, there are a lot of parts of the game that do demand a kind of specificity that you can sort of hand wave away if you're doing Theater of the Mind. But I think in some cases it can be unfair to like your spellcasters, right? It can be unfair to people that do have, or like your ranged combatants where it's like, is someone in range? Are they in long range, et cetera? Um, with that said, I think battle maps are very fun for that reason. Not not least of which because we have like Rick Perry that we work with on Dimension 20 who makes such incredible battle maps. But also I think that element of like, how do I put this? Um, the element of uh, specificity and I, for players like myself that have a lot of fun with that tactical element. Um, but like, again, battle map wise, you know, I, like when I do a home game, I have a little bag of like glass tokens. I use Othello pieces because they you can use uh, dry erase markers to write how much damage a thing has taken on an Othello piece as so it's like a little NPC token. That's, uh, so, that's pretty clever. Yeah, uh, which, is, which is, hey, thank you very much. Uh, and then I have, you know, like a little rollout canvas, like battle grid. You use the same markers on that. You spritz it off. You wipe it off with a paper towel. Um, and it's super helpful. And it just, I think also, again, a lot of what it does is it expedites things, right? Um, there, when you're doing theater of the mind, I think there can be a lot of like negotiation. However, this question is not how much better battle grid <laughs> stuff is with, with, uh, than theater of the mind. It's about how to use theater of the mind. Um, I would say the main thing if you're doing theater of the mind is um, as a dungeon master, uh, probably less enemies that are more powerful is gonna save you a lot of headache in theater of the mind style combat, right? One big monster and, and probably also like managing six PCs in theater of the mind is also, I think probably a, a little bit hard, right? Like less people just helps everyone create that mental map, right? Um, one big monster was going to work a little bit better. Um, however, I think also what can be very helpful is um, a lack of uniformity, right? If you're having a bar fight and it's theater of the mind, so there's a lot of NPCs or whatever, I think it's helpful. Like what would what would be horrible to me? You know, you know, in uh, Fellowship of the Ring, when they go to the mines of Moria and they're in the the first and they have the, those incredible columns stretching away forever. It's a terrible location for theater of the mind combat. You're like, where am I in the room? And you're like, you are by the seventh column from the fifth co column mm -hmm. away it's from the one world. million. Or it's a one mile size, you know, yeah. or actually more like 10 or 20 yeah. or something like that. Some, you know, as opposed to if you're having a fight in a saloon and you go, cool, 
there's a bar with three tables and on the left side of the room uh there's the staircase going up and the and the player playing the piano and that way you get to go okay this the wizard casts a spell and dives behind the bar the barbarian throws someone into the piano and the fencer is you know running up the staircase having a fight in other words you the the more that your theater of the mind battle location has a lack of uniformity, that instead there are specific landmarks that give us a united whole, but are themselves helping us piece together a mental map of the location that we're in. Yeah. And, and for me, it's like whenever I think about movement, I'll always say like, you're in the room. It's Everything is kind of relative. It's like, you're in the room, you're in the hallway. You know, if you want to go through the hallway and to the other room, that's two move actions, getting in the hallway and then getting to the other room. And you know, it's, I only refer to the move speed in terms of like chasing someone down. Like, well, this guy has a 30 move speed and this other person has 50. So this 50 move speed is going to chase him down, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And if you're in a normal size room, you should be able to reach anyone in the room. Like you're all kind of within hands, hands reach of everyone else. And it allows for some flexibility. Yeah. And I think too, that like, there's a good point that Ben alighted on there too, for those listening is like, if you are going to be doing theater of the mind, you need to be ready to hand wave a lot of this stuff because you are never going to be able to get it precise. So you should err on the side of ruling in your player's favor. Let the spell affect more people than rather than less people. Let them be within reach more often than not. And if you're going to impose one of these rules in a setting where it kind of is a judgment call, try to foreshadow as much as possible, right? So like, if you're going to have somebody be outside of reach, try to narrate that fact sooner rather than later, right? So in other words, as you are telling your players that an enemy is is making a speedy getaway, let's say you have an archer in the party and you know you want the player to be kind of like outside of, of range, right? Um, uh, rather than having a battle map that can allow you to adjudicate that, the archer goes, oh my God, God, like, like they're getting away. Try to set it up right there. Don't, don't be like, yeah, you see them running away. Because as soon as you say you see them running away, your archer is going to infer some things about distance just from that. Better to be like, you hear the noise of their horse, of horse hooves, on the other side of the castle walls thundering down the road, right? And now your archer, there are certain emotional things you can do because you're not, you don't have a ruler out. There are certain emotional things you can do to help set expectations for what is and is not possible. Um, don't know if you can hear my cat screaming I, in the background I, or not. I will say I did, uh, one time we, we did use, it was not a battle map, we used to play Mage Knight and there was always the problem where it's like there's some archer and his range is 12 inches and my archer's range is 13 inches, so I just I put him exactly at 13 inches or something. But then yes. you got to triangulate where it's like there's three archers. Like, oh, okay, this he's got to be this far away to get enough to get like that. And there's there's a certain noodliness that you can't really do in theater of the mind. Right, exactly. And there are, but that's the funny thing too is there are weird things in D and D, especially you know like the fact that as soon as any rogue gets cunning action. They are now one of the fastest living people in the world. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah, it's like 
oh, I can do a move and a dash and take a full attack every round? Well, I'm just going to sprint away from you, firing my weapon back at you, sort of ad infinite. So those little like range and incremental things in theater of the mind, I think just be, need to be ready to adjudicate those based on sort of the feeling of fairness, right? Which is a hard thing to do because it's, but but honestly, a lot of what we're doing in real life when we're trying to adjudicate fairness, if our if us and our friends are having a disagreement of like to a couple of roommates trying to figure out what a fair system for, you know, rent or whatever is, a lot of it is that thing of just a conversation of like what yeah. feels fair to everybody, right? Um, uh, here's a great question. Uh, this one was from Martin. Thanks, Martin. Um, Hey there, just wondering if you have any advice for making tool proficiencies more useful slash fun for players. Thanks. Uh, the dreaded tool proficiencies, the the unloved child of D&D 5e. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I have, people have complained about this so much because it's, it's so like, oh, it's, no, I'm not good at crafting. I'm proficient with crafting tools, you know, or something like that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the issue with like tool proficiencies as well is this idea of there there are so many things around difficulty classes um, with it. It's just I think there's a lot of uh, a lack of clarity about what it is we should be using tool proficiencies for, like specifically, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's also some that are like very specific and some that are not, like thieves tools versus stuff like alchemist tools like the idea of like you know you you can have a proficiency with like alchemists tools but is that the same as like can i do the things that like an alchemist artificer can do probably not right yeah. um so like what really can i accomplish um uh i think also that there are certain elements of 5e and dnd in general that has always had this issue of there are certain abilities that characters have that work effortlessly in conjunction with other characters. And as, but especially in older editions, there are some abilities that do not, right? So I think a classic example of that is like in combat, I can be swinging my sword, the cleric can be healing and the wizard can be casting spells and we're all working in perfect unison together. Compare that to like older editions of D&D with like trap finding it's like, what is the rest of the party doing while a rogue is looking for traps? Goddamn nothing. You're, you are yeah. waiting there for the trap for the rogue to take care of this problem. So I think that tool proficiencies can sometimes come across in that way of like, unless everybody has a tool proficiency and knows how to do something useful, taking that downtime for me to like craft a new sword for somebody um, can feel like it has very diminishing returns, right? Yeah. Um, it it's one of the things which often gets compared to is like, well, you know, the the alchemist doing crafting and downtime is very similar to the rogue doing sneaking stuff during a fight. And it's it's similar, but the difference though is that with a rogue, like he's getting information, he's communicating it with the, the other characters and uh, good DMs will often leave it kind of be a short thing. But with an alchemist, like it's often you're sitting at the book going, hmm, hmm, <laughs> I, th I could make this. What about this? Like, and so it's kind of like, it's very like pensive and crafting really is something that kind of happens like in single player games, you're just sitting there like, hmm, what can I do? And maybe it's something that is best done outside of the table. Like you kind of message the DM be like, oh, I want to craft some stuff. Like, um, 
and and kind of handle that outside of the game but because if it happens during the game where you're sitting there like trying to think um there have been a few times where it's come up where it's like oh we got this plan we got to make alchemist fire and you make a die roll or something and then it, it makes it um but sometimes you, you, you can drag on you know if, yeah. if you're someone who's very technically technical and very savvy about it well i think the issue too with tool proficiencies a little bit is the idea of because they are a little bit sort of like, oh, here's like a fun thing that you can kind of do whatever with that are not super defined. There Again, there are rules for what you are capable of doing with a tool proficiency. And there are campaigns that have used them to great success. Like I love, you know, uh, uh, Percy from campaign one of Critical Role, incredible tinkerer with a bunch of, uh, the, the, I feel like the craft checks for Percy in uh, the first campaign of Critical Role are an awesome part of the narrative. Uh, and Matt, I think handles them really, really well. Um, but I think the issue that people have, and a good rule of thumb for, for DMs and GMs looking to kind of incorporate this kind of thing, whenever a rule system clearly has a lot less definition and texture in a rule system, a good guideline is to not make it able to replicate what the more textured rule systems are capable of doing. Yeah. So like, you know, the, like let's say that I'm a character, I'm a rogue, I take tool proficiency with alchemist tools and, and, and then I have like expertise in that proficiency and uh, and if you go like, hey, can I make alchemist fire? And and can like, let's say that like ev by every two I beat a DC 10, it does an extra D6 damage. I hit a nat 20, I add plus 13. And now I just can constantly make these potions that deal like 15 D6 damage on a whatever. Suddenly you as a DM go, oh, one of my characters on an ancillary skill is now vastly more effective than my warlock whose whole thing is blowing people up at a yeah. distance. Yeah, because um, it's it's like this catch-all mechanic, and the problem is it, it catches all, but like sometimes right. people it can exploit it of like, oh, if it says catch-all, it does everything. It's like, no, 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 it's not. It's, it's up to DM discretion, highly up to DM discretion. Right, so I think you do want to look for that objective of, what are tool proficiencies there to accomplish in your setting? What D&D 5e would kind of communicate by, not, again, there is some design to them, but it's the same kind of design with like magic items where like compared to 3.5, where there were like chapters dedicated to telling you the gold peat race, uh, uh, the gold peat ratio of uh, how much a given magic item costs versus 5e, which is like, hey, Magic items are common, uncommon, legendary, or rare, and like give them out if you feel like it mm -hmm. later. Like you know, kind of like yeah, yeah. what? Wait, I give yes. them out. You know, when? Yeah, because normally you use the gold in order to do the crafting, and so if the players are do not have access to the gold, it is assumed that they can't buy it. You you can't have it. You just right. can't or something like that. So oh. I think if you look at a system and go, okay. D&D 5e clearly considers tool proficiencies to be mostly a storytelling tool. So I would treat it as such. Like I would be much more inclined to let someone build a ship because they want to be a cool shipbuilder character and the game is not gonna be broken by having the ability. It's, you know, what does building a ship do? You're not gonna beat an encounter with it. You're just gonna be able to go to a cool new location, yeah. which I probably want you as the DM to be able to do anyway. Uh, so I think that if your players start to ask for the ability to use tool proficiencies 
to do the things that their core class mechanics allow them to do, like deal more damage, build incredible magical items that make them better at fighting, X, Y, Z, other thing. That's when I think you can step in and go, this is either not accomplishable by a crafting check, or I'm gonna go online and find a variant crafting system, or I'm gonna homebrew yeah. a crafting system mm -hmm. myself to create actual risk and reward yeah. and cost analysis or whatever. Um, I think one of the reasons why they kind of feel unsatisfying as a player is they don't actually give you any bonus. Like they are another thing to kind of put ranks into. And in a way, sometimes it can feel kind of underwhelming because it's like, oh, I want to make, you know, I want to make some herbs or something. Oh, you have to have an herbalism kit. And it's like, oh, my nature, my survival, that's not going to help me. No, it's, it's like herbalism. And it's like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. Or um, sometimes DMs will use it like interchangeably where a rogue wants to pick a door and if they don't, if they have the they'll roll the thieves tools or thievery, like the thievery doesn't help them with thieves tools and the thieves tools don't help them with thievery. You know, I, kind of a... I always house rule that sleight of hand is your thieves tools check because if not sleight of hand is just a bizarrely too limited character. For me, it's like if you, if the idea of separating all these tool proficiencies out, I do tend to ignore tool proficiencies with the exception of, you know, but again, I, I, I'm a very lax DM mm -hmm. in that way, where if there is a, like, if you are a wizard or whatever, or like let's say you're a college of lore bard, you have expertise in arcana, you have proficiency in blacksmithing, you wanna make a cool magic thing, I might be inclined to let you add your arcana bonus rather than blacksmithing, because I'm yeah. like, damn, you went all the way out of your way, way to take a proficiency in blacksmithing. I, I don't want to hold, like, it's cool enough that you did that. Like, in other words, kind of like taking a bird's eye view and being like, where did this player character put resources? I want to reward them placing resources in a place because you have a limited amount of those. Um, and I don't want to like, hold your feet to the fire and be like, well, yeah, this is a blacksmithing check. And yeah, your character did take proficiency, but it's still only a plus three. Because you don't yeah. have, you're, because you're not yeah. using your whatever mod, you know. So, um, I because I I, I want to see those dang PCs succeed, you know. Yeah. Um. um cool. I think we have time for one more question here. Uh, question comes to us from Chungle. Thanks, Chungle. Um, uh, how do you manage pre-session stuff? How much do you discuss with the group beforehand without giving away the surprises? Uh, that's a great question. So yeah. Uh, uh Ben, what's your your um, your prep style, how do you approach preparation? And what, if anything, do you give your players heads up about? Okay, um, so there's two ways, uh, there's two things. One is, is pre-session in terms of before each individual session and then pre-session in terms of like pre-campaign. Sure. Um, usually pre-campaign is just like, oh, this is the world we're gonna be playing in, this is the tone, this is setting and stuff. And the thing is like, if, if I've been playing with a group for a while, like we all kind of, there's there's so much less stuff to do. Sometimes we don't even have like necessarily a session zero because um, you can, if we're all on the same page, I just like, oh, just make a character. It's gonna be fifth level, they'll be fine, you know? And give me your background and, and that's fine. Um, as far as before session, um, the I tend to keep things mostly pretty private. The only stuff which I tend to give the players is if there's something that's like a consideration, like, oh, you guys are gonna get this house 
And so you guys might start thinking about like, you're going to have a business, you know, probably like you might have to start thinking about that and trying to figure out like what you're going to be making that into. Um, I, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, with that idea, um, I love that idea again of like giving things, this and that we haven't gone to a lot of like detail before on, but that idea of like delegating some responsibilities to your PCs in terms of world crafting, being like, you guys got the house, like you tell me what you do with it, right? Like, um, or like what, like what are your choices within this larger thing? You know, I had a, the the campaign, the home campaign that, that had Murph and Emily and uh, other D twenty folks, like that idea of they had a house that they got. And I ended up just being like, you guys give me the floor plans for the house. Cause they were obsessed with it. It became a running joke that um, they were adventurers, but they were gonna like run for city council so that they could zone their house in a historic district and get it like, and, and being like, like, oh, like the, the city zoning ordinance, you know, like we can't do renovations on the outside of the house because it's a historic landmark. Well, dang, we gotta talk, you know, we need a, we need a friend on the city council. Like uh, their, their heroic high level adventuring group came, became obsessed with town politics. Um, uh, but I love that idea of like delegating stuff to your PCs when it makes sense to do so. Um, and again, I think that for me, I often give players heads up when it, either for like sensitivity concerns, being like, hey, like your character, you know, is going to encounter this old thing, or like your character's been captured by the enemies, like, or like, would you rather like avoid a like very harrowing scene of like confronting their old, you know, villainous whatever? Um, so I, can, I sometimes will give those kind of like almost like content warning mm. heads up. Um, I will give heads up about um, lore stuff a lot of the time. Like one of my favorite things is to, again, farm out lore drops of like, if I can save time in a session and just like send the wizard of the party this thing, you know, if it's like, I, you know, like if we get to the end of the session and a wizard hits a nat 20 arcana check, I might end on a cliffhanger of like, wizard, you recognize these runes on the wall of this dungeon this is the home of such and such. And then between sessions, I'll just do a write-up. Like, here you go, wizard, this is the deal. You tell the PCs next session. You know, like, because mm. uh, I think that can be fun. Um, so I think those heads up uh, are kind of in orders when it would make sense for a character to know mm -hmm. something. Yeah. As far as uh, pre preparing for a session, I started doing this thing. Uh, I've had a variety of stuff that I did. Sometimes I would have benched encounters. Sometimes I'd like go like, oh, I'm just gonna go free form. I'm gonna go into it and just kind of figure out who the villain is. And um, I kind of found sort of a middle ground I kind of prefer. Cause if I go to like, I go in with nothing, like yeah. then sometimes it'll be too chaotic for me. It's like, whoa, I need, I need to have some ideas going into it, you know? Um, and the, what I started doing was something called an action list where I said, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna bring up this, bring up this, bring up this. And if they go out of order, that's fine. But it's just like relative order of like, they go to the tavern, this person is going to talk to them. There's this other person and it's the, putting it in an action list means that it's like, let's say that they go to a tavern and there's like four or five things that are going to happen. Yeah. I at least kind of like can separate them out because if I just say like, oh, here's, 50 different things that could happen, it's it's too much. I need to mentally kind of fracture, like they're gonna do this, they're gonna talk to the, like, 
what are people going to know at each section of the storyline? Because sometimes what will happen is that I'll say like, oh, they're going to go off to this mountain. But once I make an action list, I'll realize, oh, they don't have an incentive. So in between there, I need to have another character who brings up the fact that the mountain is cursed and there are demons that are spilling out of it. You know, that has to happen at some point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I love that idea. And again, the nice thing about an action list that is sort of short and sweet like that is the flexibility it provides you in case something gets out of order or they move in some other direction. That again, because moving that giant pile of 50 things that could happen around becomes very cumbersome, right? The more that that... Uh, and I think sometimes people do overestimate how much they need for a session. You know, even a session of a couple of hours is probably only going to be a handful of scenes, right? Um, oh, you know, that is that is the most common problem. Is it's like, oh, we're going to go talk to this guy. We're going to fight this thing. We're going to go to the mountain. We're going to get a sword. We're going to come back with the sword. We're going to get it reforged. You're going to do. You're going to talk to a guy and go to the mountain. That is <laughs> that is all you're doing. Okay. Uh, a million percent. I love it. Talk to the guy, go to the mountain. Um, well, dang, the time has absolutely rocketed past us. Uh, uh, Benjamin Scott, a goddamn pleasure and an honor, my friend. Thank you uh, so much. for having me. It was great. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Uh, everybody here, I am sure you already have, but if you have not, go check out Puffin Forest immediately uh, for an incredible animated channel of all kinds of amazing tabletop stories. Benjamin Scott, thank you so much for being here. Oh, uh, thank and you. Woo! And we'll catch all of you next time on Adventuring Academy! Ah!